It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) And we're back on the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. This is David. Hope everybody is trying to... uh, Stay cool today. We are in the heart of Mississippi, and it is very hot. Luckily, we're indoors with where the air conditioning is working, and uh, it's quite cool and comfortable in here. Uh, real quick, before we get started, I want to ask everybody to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed, on Instagram at Digital Killed the Radio Star, and follow us on Facebook. Subscribe to us via Apple Podcast and SoundCloud, and we are now on Stitcher. So if you use the Stitcher app, you can search for our podcast there and. Uh, it will automatically come to your phone every time we update it. And I do want to ask uh, everyone, if they can, go to the uh, Nashville Rockin' Pod Expo 2 GoFundMe page on GoFundMe.com. We have some perks up there. If you donate in our name, we'll uh, let you host the show with us or we'll review an album uh, that you want us to review. And uh, like we said, the money does not go to us. Chris and I are, are paying our own way. It's just going to help the uh, organizers of the event, and that is uh, at the end of August in Nashville. So Chris is off this week uh, doing some yard work, I think. I uh, just got a text from him. So uh, I decided to uh, call up one of our uh, uh, past guest hosts and uh, actually uh, one of the most articulate uh, music people I've ever met and just a, a wealth of music knowledge. And if you listen to our Drive-By Truckers episode, uh, Dean Gavney was uh, one of the people on our roundtable discussion and uh it was our most downloaded podcast ever, so um, we uh, I really enjoyed having him on here, and I follow him on Facebook, and he's posted numerous times about the Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street being his favorite album, and uh, it's definitely one of my top five favorite albums, and I know we did do a Stones podcast a couple months ago where we went through uh, Beggar's Banquet all the way to Exile, and uh, this is just an album I thought really deserved more time and uh, for us to go through it. I know a lot of Stones fans, it's, uh, it's, it's one of their favorite albums, and it's one of the albums that uh, gets mentioned the most as being influential. Uh, we were talking before we went on there about uh, Sgt. Pepper's and Dark Side of the Moon and Exile on Main Street, and you see a lot of people get their albums compared to these. When people think uh, a certain band has put out a masterpiece, they'll say it was their Exile or their Sgt. Pepper's. So anyway... Uh, I'm going to quit talking and uh, welcome Dean Gavney back to the podcast. Dean? Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm very, uh, very excited. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, really enjoyed that Drive-By Truckers podcast. 
uh, I thought that was that was that was a lot of fun to do. You and Anthony were great on there. It was fun. That was that was a good time. We enjoyed it. And I think you said that uh, Patterson actually listened to it. Is that he, right? He did. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. You don't happen to know one of the Stones, do you? No, I know no <laughs> Stones. Uh-uh. No. Uh uh. Well, uh, Dean, as we're sitting here in your office, um, we were talking beforehand real quick about the Rolling Stones and. Why don't you just uh, give everybody kind of your history with them, so to speak, how you came to be a fan and uh, just where you think they stand in, in rock and roll history? Well, um, actually, I, I think I misspoke earlier. Um, I probably became a fan in 78, and then I saw them first in 81. And then 81 to 2003, um, I saw saw every tour through that. And then... No, but I saw him plenty, so it was great. Um, I don't know. How did I become a fan? I mean, clearly, when I was young, the first rock and roll that I got into was uh, The Who. Tommy was my first record. And I enjoyed rock and roll, and I, I had some Who and, and some other stuff, but I think the only way I was exposed to The Stones pre-teen years and even early teen years was um, by radio. And so you'd heard Jap- Jump a Jack Flash and, and Brown Sugar and, and all that kind of stuff that was played all the time. Um, but I think the first time that I ever really um, became aware of, of kind of a deep dive was probably Sticky Fingers in about 78. And then I know I bought Exile in, in, um, in 79. And that was, um, it was a revelation. It was like, whoa. What in the world do we have going on here? And um, those moments are always great. So when you first heard Exile, did it grab you right then or was it a grower? Because for me, it was a grower. It was a grower. Now, I, so because it, it's um, it's not an easy record to get into. It didn't take me long, but it, you know, I mean, it was probably two years before I would start calling it my favorite album. But, but it was, um, there's just so much to chew on there you know you've got um i i think one of the most unique things about it maybe we could talk about a little bit later is that um pretty much every style of influence that's ever gone into rock and roll is on that record and so it's like wow what's what's going on here and and uh, there's pedal steel here and there's saxophone here and you know, those were things that I hadn't been exposed to because I I, I did not grow up on country music, so I hadn't heard pedal steel. Um, horns, again, you'd hear them on the radio, but but I hadn't really... Um, I just started exploring jazz at that time, so I was just starting to hear that style of horns. And it was... Um, I mean, I, I you know, when I say that it took me a while to get into it, I worked hard at it for probably a year, like just... I got to listen to more of this. What what is this? What's going on? And um, and yeah, it just, it just kind of sunk in. And I was a Stones fan ever since. I formed my first band two years later, playing Stone songs. <laughs> so what were, um, what were some of the songs that you guys played? Oh, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Honky Tonk Women. Um, uh, a good friend of mine who still plays uh, quite a bit plays out quite a bit. He. Uh, uh, he was equally as big if that, and became a much, much bigger Stones fan than me, seeing him around the world. And, and so we just sit around, like, yeah, we want to learn this one. And of course, we were awful. But still, 
it, it was enough to make a racket with these great songs. So, uh, and there was so much of them. What else did we do? Did we do anything up of Exile? Eventually we did Sweet Virginia. I know that. And I'm trying to think. I never really did Tumbling Dice. We might have done Rocks Off, but I can't remember. But yeah, I mean, it was a huge influence. Made me want to form a band. And uh, among others, but I would say the Stones primarily were the ones that made me want to form a band. So when you're ranking your favorite bands, do are they top five? They have to be. Uh, I have a real hard time with, with that exercise because, first of all, it it changes almost every day and uh, in terms of order, so ranking them is tough. But, yeah, they, they have to be top five. There's no way they're not. All right, so you said you saw them on pretty much every tour for about 20-something years. Yeah. Uh, what was the largest venue that you saw them in? Um, so I saw them at a lot of the same venues. Um. Uh, I don't know. The, that, that's a good question. I guess the United Center uh, in Chicago was probably the biggest one. Um, but I didn't see him at any of the massive uh, football stadiums or anything like that. Um, they were all basketball arenas, outdoor sheds, that type of stuff. So were you ever lucky enough to see them in some of those small venues? You know, they were kind of... I was not. The Double Door in Chicago in the 90s, yeah. Uh, again, the same friend, he got a chance to see that. And and uh, Metro in the 90s in Chicago as well. I wish I was, but... I know one time when they played, I think it was on the Voodoo Lounge Tour in Memphis, they showed up at uh, R.L. Burnside's Juke Joint in uh, North Mississippi. The, uh, or at least Keith and Mick did. That would be cool. And I know they have that kind of famous video where they're playing with Muddy Waters in Chicago mm-hmm. uh, one night. And I think uh, it may have been on the tour that the Live Licks album was recorded on. They would do stadium show, a uh, coliseum show, and then a small theater show in some mm-hmm. of the markets. And I thought that was cool because uh, on those smaller shows, they played some of the deeper album cuts that you know you don't get in the 50,000, 60,000 stadiums, which I would really love to hear. I think the most songs I ever played off of Exile was at um, uh, a venue in Chicago called Aragon Ballroom, which was bigger than the other two places that I mentioned, but um, not very big. If I were to guess, if it's 2,000, I'd be surprised. I did not get a chance to go to that show, sadly, but... uh, um, that was I, I think I just heard that in my travels kind of doing some research for the show is is that that was the only time that they played I think eight or nine songs off of Exile, which I mean they just know that's the only time. So because um, I mean we know Mick hates the record. So right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that the, that kind of gives it its own weird thing, which is funny because recently in New Orleans, Ron Adams covered the entire album. Hmm. Uh, and so I remember that there's he has played some of these songs more times live than the Stones have which is uh, which is crazy I would have loved to have gone to that show I think uh, uh, he had it was all local New Orleans musicians that were backing him and he keeps kind of hinting on Twitter he's going to release the live album from that that would be cool that would be awesome All right, so you saw them a bunch Um, as far as what you like about them what what are what are the real positives do you think they bring? I think that that the Stones were probably the um, how do I put this? 
they were the the best compilers of of influences in rock and roll of all the mega bands that you can think of. I think that they managed to take things like like the blues and uh, and later country and soul and straight up rock and roll. And I think they managed to at various times to me. When you listen, going from the beginning, I mean, those first couple records are blues records, more or less. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they moved on, and they just they would experiment like almost one thing at a time. Each record would have an influence that was more more prominent um, that went on. And I think that that um, I think that's what drew me because it's like wow. And I think any band and their later bands after that that can expose you. To so many different things. You get done listening to the Stones, you want to go listen to Robert Johnson. You get done listening to, you know, the Stones, Sticky Fingers, or or some on Exhale. You want to go listen to Graham Parsons and Flying Burrito Brothers. I mean, you want to hear where this stuff is coming from. And then when you hear that source material, like, all right, I totally get it. Now. Right. Yeah, they definitely, especially in the early days, wore their influences on their sleeves. More mm-hmm. so than just about anybody. Yeah. Um, well... I got into them, I'm a little bit younger than you, I got into them, um, I guess it's 1988 or so when Steel Wheels came out. I was like 12 or 13, and I was telling you beforehand, my dad is a is a big rock fan, and Satisfaction is one of his favorite songs. And he can tell you, he can tell you exactly where he was. Not just like, oh, I was here, like where I was in the room when I heard, you know, Satisfaction the first <laughs> time. And so I, I had heard Satisfaction and uh, uh, Mother's Little Helper, uh, some of the some of the old things, probably stuff off that Hot Rocks album or whatever. But uh, when I was really starting to get into music, they you know they this was kind of their comeback album, the Steel Wills. And mm-hmm. so you had uh, Sad, 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 Mixed Emotions, Almost Hear You Sigh, Rock in a Hard Place. Those were all over the place. And of course, you know they had that. I think at the time it was the largest stage in history. Uh, big industrial looking metal metal stage and I was huge into Guns N' Roses at that time and Axl Rose and Izzy played uh, got, came out and played Salt of the Earth with them which is one now one of my oh, favorite right, yeah. you know one of my favorite uh, Stone songs and then as I got older uh, I started college Voodoo Lounge came out I loved I like, Love is Strong off of that and uh, 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 Through and Through which became famous on the Sopranos after it was on there but it wasn't until probably halfway through college that I just really got into them. And so Exile, I kind of went back and got into Exile. And I remember the first time I listened to it, I was like, this is kind of bland. I'm like, there's not a whole lot here. And But I remember being like, there's so many people that I respect musically say this is one of the best albums of all time. And it was just one of those things. One day I have it on, I'm listening to it in my room, and it just hits me. This is amazing. And one of the greatest things I think about this album is there are songs on this album that if you put them on another album, I don't think I would like them, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It's the flow, and like you said, they made the greatest American music record that you could make. It has rock, soul, R&B, gospel, country, right. blues, you name it. The only thing it's missing is jazz, and Charlie Watts is a jazz drummer, so I'm going to... Yeah. Throw that in there a little bit, Pretty but um, anyway, so it just has become over the years one of my favorite albums. Um, like you were saying earlier, they don't play a lot of the songs, so more of the times than not, you see other people 
um, covering them. I'm a huge Black Crows fan, and they've done Torn and Frayed, Loving Cup, Tumbling Dice, I Just Want to See His Face, Let It Loose, mm-hmm. uh, all of those songs. And it's it's so weird because there's some songs on there, specifically Let It Loose. That's, that's probably my favorite album track on there. They've never played it live. And I've seen other people play it, and it's just an amazing, amazing song. But anyway, that's kind of how I am with the Stones, and, and I love that 68 to... I'm going to say 75, 76, because I'm a huge Goat's Head Soup fan, as, mm-hmm. as you and I were talking beforehand, and uh, just anything with Mick Taylor on it. He uh, he brought brought so much to the band. Have you seen any of the videos of the tour a couple of years ago when he plays with them? Yes. Couple of them? Uh-huh. I have. I was watching... I wish he played more. I wish he had played more songs, but yes, I, it was... Well, and it's it's amazing when they play Midnight Rambler, and they let him mm-hmm. just go off on a tangent... I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that Keith doesn't know what he was doing, but there were there were times in that where he where Mick was literally just running circles around. Keith him. is a riff player. Mick Taylor is a lead player, and he and you could maybe say that he's the only proper lead player that's played in the Stones because Brian Jones um, ostensibly had that role, but he was more into other sounds and in lots of stuff and. Yeah, going on. So I, I wouldn't call him that. Um, Ron Wood is a terrific lead player, but he's also a riff player. He's sort of like like Keith, but that can sometimes jam. And not that Keith can't jam a good solo himself, right. but Mick Taylor, that's who he is. And I'm a huge fan of Mick Taylor. I mean, I, his his solo record is absolutely absolutely great. It's sort of half baked, um, and it has a. Uh, the main song he had written for the Stones, and they just never let him do it, called "Leather Jacket." It's really a, uh, it's the best song on the record, and but the record itself is great. And of course, he um, he also played on one of my other favorite records, Bob Dylan's "Infidels," which I think is a classic. And and uh, he and Mark Knopfler were the guitar players on there. So, um, yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah, I, I am too. And it's a shame that part of history, which I think was when they put out their best music. You know, they just didn't treat him right, and, you know, he's largely ignored by them, um, not by the fans, though. Well, they were all so messed up, and I, I think so, you know, that's something that, I think it both gets overtold and undertold at the same time, is that you cannot look at the music of the Rolling Stones from the death of Brian Jones through, gosh, I don't know, when they stopped becoming relevant, I suppose, Uh after Tattoo You, like you said, they had albums, Steel Wheels, and stuff like that after that. But where you can't look at it and say, there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of, these These were not real healthy people. Um, Mick Jagger, being kind of a healthy guy, but he also did drugs. He just didn't do right. the real hard ones. And um, so I don't think you can tell the Stone story without that, and I don't think you can tell the McTaylor story without that. First of all, he was 20 years old when he joined the Rolling Stones, and these guys were... His first show was on like Hyde Park. Yeah, absolutely. And and he had been playing in, in John Mayall's Blues Breakers and, and was considered like, you know, that was a breeding ground with Clapton and, and all those guys. And so he was the next, he was the next guy up. Um, and... Uh, I can't even imagine being 20 years old. And you're joining, at that point, was the second biggest band in the world. And, and the biggest touring band in the and world. And the biggest touring band in the world. And they um, and they took them off. And 
I heard a, a clip of him interviewed recently when I was preparing for this, and he said, so, he says, he says they threw me on a plane, and then they told me this was a private plane. He says, and I didn't know what went on in private planes. I mean, so uh, I can't even imagine. That, that to me, always... So sometimes when I listen to that stuff, where he actually sometimes sounds a little bit on top of the music, like they're doing this great thing and he's doing his own thing on top of it, which just melds and sounds great. I think it would be hard for him not to be there. He wasn't a founding member. He wasn't part of their sound, but boy, he enhanced it when he was there. He sure did. Uh, those solos that he plays uh, are just amazing. And I think he elevated, I think he elevated everybody's game and I think he elevated the songwriting. Even if he didn't get credit, it was just the simple fact of what he could play. Right. And, Live, you know, he really added his own own touches to all of those. Yeah, it's it's just a shame that uh, that he doesn't they don't bring him out more because um, he he those few clips that I saw he hasn't lost a step. No, not at all. Um, you know he he struggled for a long time. I saw uh, my buddy who's the big Stones fan and I saw him at a at a little tiny bar uh, near the suburb where I grew up, and um, it actually was. The it was the outside of Bob's Country Bunker from the Blues Brothers, and and at this point it was um, it was a rock bar, I think it was called Shades at the time. I, I can't remember, but anyway, we went to go see him, and he's a jerk. He was you know obviously not doing well with the drugs and stuff like that, and uh, you know here we were both of us with our albums. How many people had the Mick Taylor solo album wanting it signed, and he wasn't interested. And um, he played great, but he played for 35 minutes and then decided he was done because he was hearing too many people call for Stone songs. And um, it didn't leave a bad taste in my mouth. I've had other musicians that have, but he was so great that I, I'm like, hey, whatever. You know, and, and it was, I think it was at that, at, that might have been, around the time that he was, maybe it was a couple of years later, but he was given the opportunity to join Fleetwood Mac and he tried re rehearsing with them and that didn't work out. I don't remember if he played a couple shows or not, but he just, you know, he never found his groove again after the Stones. Here and there he'd pop up and like I said, Infidels I think is incredible work. But um, kind of a sad story to me. That would have been cool to hear in, in um in Fleetwood Mac, I mean, you know, Mike Campbell just got the job. Yep. Which I think I'm going to try to go see them in your Orleans. I think he's going to sound really good. I think so too. I, I the only one that makes sense for me date wise is in Atlanta, unfortunately. So, uh, and while homecoming is going on, and so we can't we can't do that DBT homecoming. Um, so, but yeah, I I would uh, I would have loved to have seen that, but I would have loved to see Mick Taylor and Fleetwood Mac. But you're right, that would have that would have worked. Um, so, what years is this that he auditioned for for them? Would it have been in the '80s? It would have been the first time that Lindsey Buckingham started making noises about not playing. I want to say that was '91, '92, okay. maybe. So, and and I think we saw him '88, '89. Something like that. Can you imagine him playing some of that Peter Green, Fleetwood Mac stuff? If oh, yeah, it? it certainly could have. That's what I'm hoping Mike like, Campbell does. Like, oh, oh, I've heard that supposedly that was one of the deal breakers with Lindsay was they were wanting to play stuff like, oh, well, mm -hmm. and he didn't want to play it. And uh, so 
Mike Campbell will he'll do. He'll play it. Fine. I he'll mean, play they played it. it for years. So yeah, Petty and them played it. Yeah, that would have been cool though with Mick. All right, so the album, a, a little bit of back history for everybody if you're not familiar, was released I think in March of two of 1972, and it was the recording of it. We could do probably a whole podcast just on how it was recorded. Um, it was recorded some at I think it's uh, studios in London, and then it was recorded in the south of France at Keith Richards' house. And that's where I think the bulk of it was either recorded or they got the they got uh, the written, and then they recorded some tracks in Los Angeles. So at this point uh, in time, England's tax structure was just insane. I don't know why anybody would live there, but the Stones owed all this money in back taxes, and they uh, had blown all their money that they had to pay the taxes. So that they were in danger of you know having. Uh, the government garnish, you know, garnish their wages and possessions. So they leave the country and go to France. And I think this is when Mick had married Bianca. Right around the same time. Right around yeah. the same time. Um, the the deal with with uh, the the tax exile thing is that they literally couldn't stay in England. They did one last tour there, but they calculated it out. And they couldn't make enough money to ever pay their taxes back based on the tax rate. I think they were in the 93% tax bracket. And with the money they were making and the their manager, who had been screwing them over for years, um, they they just assumed their taxes were being paid. They, they were not. And they, so they couldn't, as rich as these guys were, they couldn't pay off those taxes. So yeah, so they went... Um, they went to the south of France where Keith Richards had rented a, a, a home, I guess you'd call it, a mansion um, called Nelcott. And I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but I'm close. Yeah, um, I was going to let you be the first one to throw it out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, so they went there and he was there. But there were a few reasons for it. One, they wanted to go to the south of France, but they, they looked around the studios. There wasn't anything they really wanted to do. So they brought their mobile recorder unit um, and... They said, okay, well, Keith is, and, and this is why I say you can't separate the drugs. I, I hate dwelling on them, but you can't separate it because one of the reasons why they decided to record there was so that Keith would maybe be around. Be around. Well, drugs, they could, drugs are the sixth member. Right. So, so they could keep him, um, they could keep him uh, around and, and hopefully showing up for sessions. It didn't always work that way, even though it was his house. Um but, uh, you know, here they are, and, and this whole entourage, which included Graham Parsons and many of the musicians that he played with, I get a real kick out of the fact that Graham Parsons was so messed up that he eventually got kicked out. Right, yeah, I think Mick said he's got to go. Or, yeah, you know. I, I, the, the fact that Graham Parsons was too messed up for that scene um, is really kind of an amazing thing. But here's this whole entourage, and the other thing is was all their kids, too. Right. So, so you've got... People doing various things, and and uh, and yet you're nearby to the beaches and and everything else, and and uh, so a lot of the hangers on were like, "Wow, we've never seen anything like this in our life." But it was, um, it was brutally hot. It was uh, swampy. They had to record in the basement. They thought they recorded in the main house, but they recorded in the basement. Um, there was no communication between the mobile unit, and I mean, it's just one of these things where. If you were saying, okay, we're looking for a place to record, you would never, ever in a million years choose choose what they did. And um, 
And it was their producer was Jenny Miller, who had started. Um, was that his fourth record, Jimmy Miller's? I can't. I can't remember. Um, I'd, I'd probably have to look. But at any rate, so Jimmy Miller is there, and he's in the early stages of his own heroin addiction. So, so you've got that going on all at the same time, and and um, but he was the ringleader, and he was trying to get this this stuff all done. And you know, those are the stories that I think are probably best. The people are most familiar with, you know, this debauchery and, and everything else. And they finished up the record in L.A., I mm-hmm. believe, um, later on. But uh, so there's some stuff there. But I, I think that swampy, murky basement and whether this is uh, anecdotal or not, um, I think the supposedly this was the headquarters for the Gestapo in Nice. Uh, so... And they they claim that there was there were swastikas on on the ventilation shafts, but that's almost impossible. Which is why I I wonder if if the whole thing is not true. Nobody's been able to prove it or disprove it. So hey, what the heck? So they, they you know they rock and rolled where the Nazis hung out, I suppose. Well, yeah, they had this this motley crew of people there. A lot mm-hmm. of hangers on um, there with them. One of my favorite stories uh, from, from reading about it was they had gotten a hold of 100% pure pharmaceutical grade cocaine. All right, so I, I'm a pharmacist, and pure cocaine is not like what is on the street. Mm-hmm. This it's lethal, lethal in very, very, very you know small quantities. But it was so good. Keith was so scared that somebody was going to OD, they came up with a formula of how to cut it, you know, with I don't know, talcum powder or whatever they cut it with. So he put it in the bathroom and he wrote in like soap or a marker on the bathroom mirror the formula to <laughs> cut it because he didn't want anybody to drop dead. And, you know, at this point, Keith is just in the throes of, of heroin and mm-hmm. he's got his... Um, I forget her name, his wife with him. Anita Pallenberg. Uh, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. his girlfriend, yeah, Anita Pallenberg. So she's there, and like you said, Graham Parsons is there. Uh, Graham Parsons, we'll talk about later, really shows up influence-wise on a few mm-hmm. songs. Mick, at this point, his celebrity is taking off to the point to where he's he's really kind of getting in with uh, kind of the upper echelon of society, whereas like I don't think Keith was ever, Not interested. Was ever interested in no. that or comfortable with it. Uh, or even, you know, wanted to be around those people. Mick is, Mick is becoming the Mick Jagger we know of today at this point. So he and Bianca have a house, I think, in France, mm-hmm. I mean, in Paris. And so they're coming in and coming out. Bill Wyman and, and Charlie Watts are there. They fly, Bobby Keys is in, mm-hmm. uh, off and on. And so uh, you know that's bad when, when your Grand Parsons, you get asked to go home and you got Bobby Keys and Keith Richards. This there. is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy when you think about it. But the recording of it was just it's a it was crazy. It's amazing this thing ever got done because they would record late at night on a lot of these takes. It's not members of the Stones playing on them or even playing the instruments that you know them to play. Uh, Bill Wyman said you know they'd be up to three or four in the morning, and finally they would get into a condition to where they could record something. Whoever was there, they would they would play. And I think there's several tracks. Charlie Watts is not on there. I think Happy's one of the songs that was kind of a... I, guess, I think... Uh, I think... 
Jimmy Miller played drums on Happy, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And uh, was it Nicky Hopkins was there? Yeah, Nicky Hopkins as well. And so Doctor John. Yeah, Doctor John is there. So they just have this mm-hmm. wide assortment of musicians, and they're just throwing stuff up against the wall. It sounds like, and. Keith Richards would come in and out. Sometimes they're recording and Richards is upstairs, you know, passed out uh, with his heroin issues or whatever. So they have some the basic tracks and they take it to L.A. to try to clean it up. And I think they record some new songs while they're in yes. L.A. And, uh, you know, the album comes out and it's a double album, which at that time, um, I don't think were there were that many of them. No. Off the top of my head, I think it was, Quadrophenia would have been out at that point, wouldn't it? Quadrophenia. Tommy, the White Album. Um, I bet there are a handful more. The 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 Prague guys were putting out double albums, yeah. but I, I I can't off the top of my head. But they certainly weren't common. No. So as as we gonna get into it track by track, uh, we I do want to say we talked about it earlier. Every style of American music is represented here. Uh, except for jazz. And I'm sure somebody that knows more about jazz than I do could probably find a jazz lick or two in there that Charlie Watts does. Right. But it's so interesting at this time frame, the people of England are putting out better American music than Americans are. And to talk about in um, Keith Reed, have you read his autobiography? I have. Uh-huh. He talks about driving through the Mississippi Delta in Arkansas uh-huh. You know, in 1962, 1963, and going in these predominantly African American juke joints and just soaking up uh, the history and soaking up the music and, you know, basically saying, I want to do this. I want to play this music. And this is an album where a lot of those influences really uh, come out. So the opening song rocks off. Your your thoughts on it? It's straight ahead rocker. It's maybe. It's one of the rockingest songs they ever did. It's certainly the most rocking opener they ever opened a record with. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's it's just, it's one of my favorites. I, I, I find it interesting I want, who Mick is singing to. Um, some say it's Keith, sometimes it's Graham Parsons. Um, but it's just, it just takes off and, and grabs you. And I would think... I don't know how you were that when I when I first heard that record I was like oh here we go and it was when it got that it got into the weeds a little bit that you like oh. and and you start to, to maybe not being as accessible and you've got to work through each one of those little mm-hmm. little areas to get through but yeah it's fantastic one of the ones I, I don't recall ever seeing them playing that did, did, have you ever seen them play it I don't believe so I've certainly seen a lot of other artists play it which is crazy because we were talking earlier about. Mick is so intent on these set lists being just one hit after the other or a song at least that he can get the crowd going. Of all the songs in their repertoire, this is one yeah. that, would, that, would, that would fit into a stadium. I, I don't know. You know, you talk about I don't think he hears a hook. And, you know, that's one thing that, that I've always found listening to his interviews, and I'm sure somebody would argue with me, but that's okay. Um, I, I don't think he understands a song that doesn't have a hook. And I think it led him down some tougher patches later on, both with the Stones and, and his mostly dreadful solo records. Um, and and I think that that's I think that's part of why he doesn't really hear the record. He doesn't hear hits. He doesn't. I think he's a very astute businessman that knows the music business and certainly 
knew it at that time as well as anybody did. Mm -hmm. And um, he was in music to make money. He was a business major. Yes, he loved it. He was doing what he loved. But it can't ever be forgotten that he was there to make money. And I don't think he thinks that's a moneymaker song, but of course it is. Um, Jason Isbell had it as his encore for maybe a year or so, a few years back. And I mean, it's just great. Yeah, I love it when he plays uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking. That's another great That's one. another great yeah. song for another day. Next song is Rip This Joint. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's almost, to me, I, I, I think it... Um, I think it foreshadows punk because that's fast mm-hmm. and it's it's and with this stream of consciousness type of fast paced lyrics going on that that I think it's uh um it's punk before there was punk well it was sort of punk but which would be a few years after this yeah Exactly. But I guarantee you some of those guys heard this album. Of course they did. Whether they wanted to admit it or not. <laughs> and many of them did admit it, especially later on. I mean, it became a big influence on, um, I would say, more post-punk than 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 the get the old guys out of here punk movement. Right. But, but later on, certainly, I mean, you try to tell me that somebody like Green Day never listened to Exile on Main Street. Yeah, um, right. So, you know, but yeah, so it, that's what it is. It's almost punk. And so those... I think that's those two tracks just, I, I mean, you don't know what you're getting into. And that's, I think, what I said is then when it starts to slow down with the very next song, that's when maybe it, it's not as easy because you're like, wow, I'm ready to go. And then you hit Rip This Joint. So, you know, it, it, or I mean, you hit uh, Shake Your Hips right after Rip This Joint. Speaking of Shake Your Hips, so that's song number three. That is one of the songs that I was alluding to. If this was on Tattoo You or something like that, I would probably skip it. Mm-hmm. But I don't skip this album anyway. And this is one of those songs that I love in context of the album. Mm-hmm. It fits. And it's it's a very, I don't know, almost like soothing song um, that uh, starts, this is the first nine, you know, straight up rock song on the album. And it's a, forebearer of what's about to come Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on it yeah absolutely um i i think that uh it it slows everything down it gets it brings it down into that swamp um one of the things about exile for me that i think is so great is i think it's one of a dozen albums that i can think of in rock and roll that to me have a sense of place as opposed to when i go to exile i feel like i'm going to a destination it's it's a it's a work. It's not, and I think that's kind of what you were saying a little bit, is that you would it's skip it on another one, but it's, it's it, it, the uh, Exile is, is a work as a whole, which end up becoming my favorite records. Um, all of, I would say all of my favorite records are destination oriented. It's, you wouldn't take one thing off of them. You wouldn't add one thing to them. And, I know that at the time the album was considered very bloated for exactly that reason. And um, I think as you move on and as history has showed us, it wasn't, it was necessary. Yeah. The, the reputation of this album just grew as it went on. Like when it first came out, I think the sales weren't that great on it. And here, here... It went to number one right away. And then it did tail off a little bit. I can't remember which one, one of the great rock at the time absolutely panned it, 
and a month later came back and wrote a glowing review saying how wrong he was. Well, I can easily see how that would happen. The first time you hear it, you're like, this is just a bunch of stuff thrown right. up against the wall. We're seeing what will stick. But that's not the case. Uh, next song, Casino Boogie. Mickey Hopkins, piano riff. I mean, it's it, it's it's great. Um, some of the lyrics are, are colorful. Um, it's great. I mean, and, and it's... I, it's it's interesting. I heard in doing this research, I was hearing um, if some of these songs are cautionary tales about drugs and rock and roll, Casino Boogie might be a cautionary tale about gambling if you really go into it. But but it's not. It would take you a while to get to that, but it probably is. But it's I like it. I like yeah, it a, lot. a great Nicky Hopkins track. Now we're getting into what I think is the meat of the album. Let's see, it's one, two, three, four, five, six. This may be the best six-song run on any album in history, in my opinion. I, I think I, yeah, six songs. Yep, you're right. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Tumbling Dice, Keith Richards' favorite song to play. He mm -hmm. says that opening riff is like honey. It's never He never gets tired of playing it. He said it's so smooth, it, the transition on it, he just loves it. He loves the reaction it gets. This is the one that... I think it's been played on every tour since um, since the album came out. This and Happy are probably the only two that you're ever going to really see with any regularity. A very catchy song, a very fun song to sing live. It's one of those songs live where the whole crowd just lights up. Yeah. Even if you don't know the person next to you, you got your arm around <laughs> them, you know, and you're 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 singing with them. It's one of the greats of rock and roll, no and, question. And they have they have they have embraced it, and like we said, play it every tour. Uh, the the quote unquote hit off this album. Mm -hmm. It was the first single. Yeah, it's one of those songs that I never get tired of hearing. There are a lot of like I could go the rest of my life and never hear "Stairway to Heaven" and I'd be okay. Yeah, uh, same with like Aerosmith's "Dream On" stuff mm -hmm. like that. This is one that's a huge hit. That's very very popular. I don't get tired of hearing it. It's like Tom Petty songs. Right. You know, I yeah. can hear "Free Falling" every day and I'm yeah. I'm gonna be happy. Yep. Um. One thing that I think, this was, I, I just came across this in my research that I didn't realize it, and this is very interesting. I'm going to listen to it. Um, so Charlie Watts apparently was having uh, a hard time after the breakdown in the song, and so the first half of the song is Charlie Watts playing drums, the second half is Jimmy Miller. Wow. Because he just couldn't get it at the end, so they, they spliced Jimmy Miller in, which is interesting. I, one of the greatest songs of all time, and it's got... One drummer at the beginning and another drummer at well, the end. Well, I can almost see that because I'm not a drummer, but Charlie, I believe the way he plays, it's it's heavily jazz influenced. And when you watch him, classic trap drummer. Yeah, when, when he's when he's on the hi hat, where other people are going down, he's he's yeah. missing the beat, and I don't know what you call that. I could see that being a problem with this song because this is a very melodic uh, mm -hmm. melodic tune. Uh, like we said, gets played all the time. One of the Probably one of the, the must-dos that they have to do now. Charlie Watts, to me, just to, to sidetrack a little, is, um, to me, he's the prototypical rock drummer. Of my... You can look at the... You can look at the virtuosos. You can look at at Neil Peart and people like that all, all you like. And, and I, you certainly... You can't diss them for what they do, but that's not what I'm looking for drums to have the role in the bands that I listen to. I'm looking for the drums and the bass to form a bottom, to form 
I don't even want to really be aware of them unless I want to be aware of them, in which case then I just groove on it because I'm listening to the interaction between the bass player and the drummer. And, and um, I think a lot of the best drummers um, that are out there working today uh, are in the same style of Charlie Watts. And, and, uh, but he was, he was the first. He, was, he wasn't Ringo. Ringo was, um, Ringo was more basic than that. And, um, but like you said, he brought that jazz sensibility to it that I think became a classic in rock over the next 30 Which years. Which fits him with the way he looks mm -hmm. when he's back there playing. Like yeah. my dad and I always said, he looked like he should be working at an accounting firm. <laughs> you know, partner in an accounting firm. All right, so the next song is Sweet Virginia. Now this is where Graham Parsons' influence, sure. I think, really comes in. Uh, a country song. No other way to put mm -hmm. it. Kind of uh, like something. I, I, to me, this song, I envision them sitting around three or four in the morning. Everybody's overserved. The acoustic guitars come out. They come up with this chorus, and everybody's sitting there with their beer in their hand around the campfire or down in the basement or whatever, and just this song happens. Yeah, this is supposedly one of the ones where Keith Richards was sitting in a chair playing it for like eight hours. He just was sitting there playing it, and had people walking by and doing their thing, and there, there's Keith, and he just keeps playing this chord progression over and over. And I guess then when they started working late at night, I think it's exactly what you said. I think everybody's like, oh, well, that's cool. What, what can we do with that? And everybody jumps in hootenanny style. And I wonder if there's an actual list of who all singing backing vocals. I don't that. know. Because that would be interesting. I actually looked, I saw, I found some contradictory track listings today, but um, when I was looking, so my, my buddy probably knows, He's he, he'd be probably the one to tell me. But, but yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. And it's, uh, uh, I mean, of Grant Parsons' influence, the first one going down this territory was the album before with uh, Dead Flowers. And, um, and I'll say this, I, I know we're going to get into the influences later. Um, I think that without Sweet Virginia and Dead Flowers, I don't, I think the alt country music scene is completely different. I think those two songs, throw Wild Horses, in there too. Wild Horses is another one, throw those songs away and they never existed. And you don't, you probably don't have Trace or, you know, by Sunvolt or, or the early Uncle Tupelo stuff. That stuff kind of took that. There's a band called the Dead String Brothers, um, which I would highly recommend, by the way. Um, and they took those songs and made a career out of it. And so every one of their albums really sounds like if you took Dead Flowers and Sweet Virginia and called it a genre, that's the genre they play in. And... Um, so hugely, hugely influential. Of course, Graham was influential in his own right, but he certainly, I think, had a greater emphasis by passing it off to the Stones. You wonder what would have happened if he'd been allowed to stick around for all the recording. Yeah. Where, where, would there possibly be another song? Um, I'm really shocked that somebody in the country music world over time has not taken this song and made a hit out of it. Yeah. Because it's... Of course, well, country, what we call country today is not really country, but, no. uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So we move right on to what is probably my second favorite song on the album, Torn and Frayed. Mm -hmm. Graham Parsons is all over this one, too. Absolutely. Al Perkins on pedal steel. Some of the uh, some of the cooler lyrics I think they've, uh, they've ever written, you know, 
um, Torn and Frayed, a great song covered by a lot of people. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen them play this live anywhere. Maybe they've done it in one of these small club shows. But one of the more country songs on the album, to me, the, of the country songs on the album, this is my favorite one. And it's one of my favorites. It's my it's a top 10 Stone song for me. It's, it's a great song. I, I think that, to me, uh, off this record, it sort of fits into a... a a little bit of a trilogy. I would say there are the three points on the record that I would point to as being integral to everything that was going on, and that would be um, uh, that would be uh, Rocks Off, and then Torn and Frayed, and Soul Survivor, um, which I think that they show Rocks Off is is sort of if you listen to the lyrics and kind of feel the song. We're heading off into this crazy world, and we're probably going off the rails, but here we go. And I think Torn and Frayed is another one. Torn and Frayed is directly referencing Graham Parsons or Keith Richards' heroin addictions, or or both. Um, and the words are the words are gentle, but they're clear if you look at it. And then you get, and of course we'll talk about Soul Survivor at the end. But and then at the end is like, well. We made it. Here we are. We're at the end of this of this crazy journey, and and I really do. It's they they're signposts for me. Like here we start, and and now we're almost in the middle, and uh, here we come at the end. That's a very interesting analogy, uh, very astute observation. Uh, some of their better lyrics: "Doctor prescribes, drugstore supplies. Who's going to help him to kick it?" Mm-hmm. I think we're know what they're referencing there. They may Absolutely. they may say codeine, but they're talking about something else. Yes. All right, the next song, Sweet Black Angel, I believe is written about a uh, civil rights activist. Is that Angela correct? Davis. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is one of those songs, like I was talking about earlier, if it's on another album, I may skip it. Mm-hmm. This one, of all the songs on this album, has probably grown on me the most over the years. I would say the same. That's that's interesting. That's mm-hmm. a mark of a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, has that country feel, kind of the country trifecta, I guess, right here in the middle uh, do you have any more thoughts on on that song? Yeah, I um first of all, so it says she was in prison at the time and it was mixed love letter to her, but it's it's sung in how would I say? It's almost like a rock and roll lullaby, I suppose, but it's it's definitely very reverent. Um the words to it are are soft. You've got that chugga 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 thing going on behind it, and um, but like you said, if it was on, if if standing on its own, it doesn't quite work as a bridge from Tord and Frayed to Loving Cup. I don't want to listen to those two songs without Sweet Black Angel in the middle of it. So um, it's uh, it's interesting when you think about it. And it's a it's a very overtly political song, which they have not done a whole lot of those. In Probably their the most in their career, yeah. Um, and it fits well in between "Torn and Frayed" and "Loving Cup." "Loving Cup" uh, is the next song. Mm-hmm. Um, never get tired of hearing this one. Uh, they never play it. I know they on that um, Martin Scorsese, I think, directed film. I was at Shine a Light. They did the Beacon Jack White of the White Stripes. Played it with them, and I think that. Oh, okay, the cool. First time I, I've ever heard that. This song has just such a such a great feel to it. Piano is very prominent. Uh, definitely, still probably has a little bit of the Graham Parsons uh, influence on this one as well. 
obviously it's been covered more times than it's been played by them, which I think is a is a shame. First time they played it was Mick Taylor's first show in Hyde Park. That was where it where it debuted. Um, I love it. I think it's it's certainly one of my five or six favorites on the record, um, and it does have some good work from Mick Taylor on it. It's just it's got a nice groove. It grooves really well, and um, and like you said, it almost finishes off the country portion of the album. It's you know that influence goes for a few tracks, and I don't know how much of that was conscious and how much of that is how much was accidental and how much of that is projecting <laughs> later on. But but uh, that's how it feels. Sonically, very pleasing to the ears, for sure. So the next song is, in my opinion, the quintessential Keith Richards song. No question. One of the greatest rock and roll songs about the rock and roll yeah. lifestyle that's ever been written. It's happy. If you go see them in concert, uh, I feel like it'd be a letdown if he doesn't play it. I know he doesn't play it every night. Probably plays it half the time. This and uh, You Got the Silver are my two favorite uh, Keith songs by far. <coughs> this one's fun. Uh, you know, I'm a Before They Make Me Run fan. That, that, that's a great one, too. Some, some Girls is an awesome record. Yeah. One, I always love it when, um, before he plays this song a lot of times, he looks at everybody and he's like, hey, it's good to be here. Hey, it's just good to be anywhere. It's good to be alive. You know, it's almost like, hey, I live this. I've made it through to the other side. Um, and we're going to have fun with it live now. It is so much fun to see them because Ronnie Wood is playing the, uh, the steel guitar on mm-hmm. this. I've heard Keith say that Ronnie, if he wanted to be, could be the greatest steel guitar player of all time. If he, if he dedicated, you know, dedicated himself to it. I don't know anybody that doesn't like this song. Do you? No. Uh, uh-uh. and so talking about, about what was, what was going on at the time, apparently, while they were at Nelcott, Anita Pallenberg came in and t- told him that she was pregnant and he wrote this song. So that has, that's another element to it, that he was expecting another child. And, and uh, um, his mood was not always great when they were there um, in France, but it was for that song. And I mean, it's one of the great rock and roll tunes of all time. It's, it, I don't know what else you could say about it. It just is. Amazing song, like we said. Now... If there's, we're gonna if if for me there's kind of a downturn on the album, we're we're gonna get there. The uh, in my opinion, the aptly named "Turd on the Run." <laughs> um, your thoughts on this? Um, it's a it's. So one thing, and, and if any of my uh, my drive by trucker heathen brethren hear this, they're gonna laugh because there's nothing I hate worse than describing an artist's work as filler. Um. Because I don't think that's true. I, I think that outside of the big hit factories, there's nobody that's consciously saying we're putting filler on our record. Um, you could call it that, and I probably wouldn't punch you. But is it bad? No, it's not bad. And it continues the record, but yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't skip it, because like I said, I listen to this all the way through usually, but um, I'm definitely not uh, paying as much attention during this song. Uh, ventilator blues. I like it better than Turd on the Run, but just a little bit. I like it because it's a song about a fan in the window. I think that's awesome. You're just sitting there and you're jamming in the basement, and everybody's everywhere. I mean, I, you've seen the pictures, and and it's just these. Some of the rooms look like jail cells, and they're all separated off in different places, and and 
but they but the ones that are in the main room are looking up at this fan in the window and they just started playing a song i think it's cool for no other reason than that definitely not sober times no no and that's one of those that maybe you're tired and you're hot and you're you know we we haven't gotten into it a whole lot but um and and i think I'll, i'll touch on it a little bit later but um we haven't talked about the sound at all of the record. And from any sound engineer standpoint, this would be a crappy record. Um, you would listen, the mixed vocals are, are too down in the mix, you would think. Um, on some songs, and some songs yeah. are too high. And and you would, and the, the separation between bass and drums isn't always what it's supposed to be. It wasn't required. The rooms didn't really sound great. I mean, you're talking about concrete, which is not, if you've ever been to some of these makeshift venues that are made of concrete and, and heard a band there, I always feel bad for the sound guy to try to have to fix that. And um, so, but it all works. And And to me, Ventilator Blues is one that sort of, it almost celebrates it. Like, yeah, this sounds like crap. There's a fan in the window, but we're jamming, and it's good. And that that's sort of the vibe I get from that song. The next song is the first of kind of two gospel-tinged songs mm-hmm. that are, that are going to be on the album. I just want to see his face. I think this may be not strangest, but the most interesting song in their catalog. It sounds they've never done anything else mm-hmm. that sounds like this. Right. Uh, Mick, when they were in LA, I believe was going attended some gospel, uh, attended some church services, and really got into the gospel music and uh, felt inspired to um, write this song. Now, sonically, doesn't really sound a lot like when we think of a, of a gospel music, but the lyrics are, you know, are, are talking about talking about Jesus, talking about God. But uh, this is one where, like you were talking about, the vocals are so far down. Mm-hmm. It was a long time before I ever even knew what the song was about because it's so muddled. I want to say some of that was probably intentional. Um, that was a one-take vocal track, and he didn't write any words down. Complete stream of consciousness words. And so maybe that was part of it. Maybe he didn't want the vocals up so much for that. I, I don't know Kinda the like answer. Kind of like those early R.E.M. records? Yeah. Well, I, that's a different <laughs> story. We could talk about that all day. Um, but, yeah, so I don't think he wanted to highlight the words there. And, and again, it's one of these tracks um, that I just think adds to the sense of place as it goes along. Yeah, like you said, on other albums it may be filler, but it just it ro- it rolls with the punches on right. this one. All right, so the next song is probably my favorite song on the album that's not part of that uh, country or, or six-song run at, at the beginning is Let It Loose. The vocals on this, I think it's one of Jagger's best vocal um, performances that we have. Uh, the playing on it is stellar. I don't think it's ever been played live by the band, which that to me is, that's, uh, that's a shame. Um you see it. You've seen it in several movie soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Departed, for one, it's a it's a great scene. In the Departed. Um, this is a song I feel like doesn't get a lot of love, but uh, to me, it's it's one of my favorite Stone songs. So I had to pick a top ten. It's definitely in it. Oh, cool. Yeah, I wouldn't say that, but it it's a great song. It's a great song. It definitely is adds to the adds to the record. I almost feel like it may have fit in better on Goat's Head Suit. Yeah, maybe. Uh, with sonically. All right, so the 
Next one is the uh, always crowd-pleasing, foot-stomping, arena rock, all down the line. Uh, this is kind of Rocksoft's kissing cousin, so to speak. Uh, this one is uh, this is a straight rock song that uh, gets still gets played a lot to this day. Yeah, it's and it's a great song. It's um, it's not one of my two or three favorites on the record, but it, it is a it is a very good song. Um, and it, like you said, it is a crowd pleasing sing along. There's nothing wrong with the track. No, not at <laughs> it's all. It's a good song. It's a good, solid song. And the lyrics are great. Mick can, can definitely dance around to this one on stage if he's needing one to uh, jump around with. And it has a... Th this one has a hook. This was the... the uh, my understanding, and I, I'm going to double check if I'm right right here. Yeah, that's I thought I was right. Um, this was the song that Mick wanted to be the single. And he got pushback from the A and R folks. And what was the first single? Was the first single was Tumbling Dice. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next song is uh, their version of a Robert Johnson song, "Stop Breaking Down." They really show their blues influences on this one, and it's uh, another fun one to listen to. And uh, the the players are in top form on this one. Yeah, I mean, it was their loving tribute to the blues. The only blemish on that is that they didn't credit it. And, and which, you know, that, that, that sometimes has irked me over time with some artists that I really like of that era that weren't doing that. They were taking the songs and, and Led Zeppelin and famously and, and, um, but they didn't credit him at first. Now he's credited and that's, that's great. But yes, this is, the Stones were a blues band. Now I, I honestly didn't listen to that blues record that they released a couple of years ago, but people have told me it's how, really how great it is. And I, I really should. I just sometimes there aren't enough hours in the day. So, um, but yeah, they at their heart, they started as a blues band, and and uh, and that might be the last pure blues song they ever recorded up until maybe, maybe that blues record. Oh yeah, that blues record. I think they did it in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, they met Mick and Keith met, I believe, in a subway station, and Keith had a or Mick had a bunch of um, like Muddy Waters records. Okay, and Keith was like, "Hey, where'd you get those?" And that's kind of supposedly how their friendship started. So they definitely bonded over over this type of music. And um, like we said, that's uh, Robert Johnson. Stop breaking down. The second gospel song that they did uh, on the album is up next, "Shine a Light." Uh, I enjoy this song. Uh, it's my favorite song on the record. Is it really? Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. well then, then expound, expound on. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that the hook in this song is "May the good Lord shine a light on you, uh, warm like the evening sun," and it, it's it's perfect. It describes it's a driving song for me. It comes on the radio, and up that goes, and and um, I think it's uplifting. It's upbeat. This album is. Given what went on behind it, this is this is an album that it, it doesn't have a lot of uplift in it. But here you go, and like you said, the gospel influence does do that because you can't get into that styling without being uplifted. It was what it was designed mm -hmm. to do, and and came from a place of joy. And I think the song comes from a place of joy. Is is Nicky Hopkins playing piano on this? I don't know the answer to that. Um, because the piano is prominently featured. Billy Preston. Oh, okay. Wow. Yep. 
and and uh, Jimmy Miller was on drums. So yet yet another one where Charlie Watts was not. Uh... That, that must have been recorded late at night. Mm-hmm. I can see Charlie being like a creature of, of habit. Well, they barely started. The they started at eight o'clock at night, but they rarely got anything down on tape until about midnight or one. Um, I was listening to one of the label folks that had been assigned to him at that time, and and he there was like, well, you can get a, you know, they get out their own record label and all that. Well, you can you can get an album a year out of them or every eighteen months, right? And then he went to Nice and, and saw them doing this and he, it was like they were working glacially. It would say he was working on a song where they'd get three sides done in two days and this this band would work on a song for two weeks. And so that kind of blew his mind. But uh, um, but yeah, this just joyful, brought it to a place. And it's it's really interesting to me Shine the Light could have ended the record. That's what I was about to say. It could have, and and there you were, but I'm sure glad it didn't, because I love Soul Survivor. Soul Survivor, the the final track, and now I'll think of it in a new light after your uh, analogy with the uh, three distinct sections. Uh, a, a great song, a, a very rocking song. Mm-hmm. And uh, they begin and end this, letting you know they're a rock band. Yeah, it could have opened the record. Very, very well. Yeah. It could have it could have opened the record. It's it's one of those. Um, I happen to be in the annals of rock and roll. I'm a fan of bands that that have the chutzpah to put a great great song to to end the record. I don't think a lot of bands have have it within them to do that. Especially they, these days. They, especially these days, because people don't have the attention spans. But even throughout time, I don't think a lot of bands did that. And the ones that have, well, your your Black Crows almost always did it on every mm-hmm. record. Um, I, it's something that I just really like. You put a great song, let everybody walk away feeling good. They, like I said, they could have ended on Shine a Light. They went to Soul Survivor. Soul Survivor could have opened the record, could have closed the record. It's it is a bookend. Um, that, like you said, we're a rock and roll band. This is this is what we did. But it's also when you look at in between those two songs, it is, I said it has a sense of place. It's also a grueling journey. They didn't know they were going to finish this record in intact. I mean, it's just, it's kind of insane. It sounded bad. It was, the equipment was, was bad. And they made it through the other side. Soul Survivor. They had this huge entourage, like you say, with kids running around and, and, and everything else. And Soul Survivor, they made it. So, I agree with you about closing tracks on albums, especially this one because it's a long, it's a double album, it's a long mm-hmm. album. Yeah, it's kind of almost hey, thank you for for sticking with us through this. We were all over the place on this album. But, yes, but when we send you home, we're sending you home knowing we're a rock band right. that has some country influence, blues influence. But at the end of the day, that's how we make our money. Right. Yep. So, Dean, what you were saying earlier, you think this may be the most influential album I do. Of, of all time. I do. I, I think that, I, I can think of um, all sorts of albums that, that it had a direct influence. I mentioned already that I think that it had a direct influence on, on Alternative Country 20 years later. Um, I, don't think, I don't think Alternative Country exists without what the Stones did on Sticky Fingers in Exile. Um, 
at least not the way it is. They might have found some different influences to go into it, but there's an awful lot of stones going on. And in people that were working in rock with country influences and everything else, I mean, these guys were listening to the stones. I, I remember in a, a, just a brief drive-by trucker sidetrack, um, an interviewer mentioned to, to um, Patterson, I can't remember which album it was, but it was one of the Stones' influence tracks. And it was a podcast or something, so I was listening to the interview, and they said, wow, that track almost um, sounds like a Stones cut. And Patterson started laughing and said, yeah, I think Mike Cooley has listened to a few Stones records. Was it day. Three Dimes Down? Because that's what I always think of. No, I think it was, and, and we're, we're language controlled here, right? The first yeah. track on English Oceans. Okay. <laughs> uh, so um, I think that's that's the one it was. But at any rate, so, but I mean, then they were far from the only one. And, and you hear all these, like you said, Ryan Adams and Jason Isbell and all these people, these were what, these were the great songs I grew up on, but these are people that, recognized a great song regardless of genre it didn't matter to them so their influences came from all over this place but but because the stones put all that together and showed you that you, to me it was the first rock record that showed you it was okay not to be homogeneous it, it wasn't your records didn't all have to be the same thing it could you could go down all different paths um like I said before, too, and, and maybe I didn't put it in these terms, but I think it was a bridge of everything that came before and everything that came after. And, you know, some of the albums that I think that have an, inmis- an unmistakable influence, um, Wilco's being there. I don't think that record exists without Exile. Um, strangely, and even though it only came a few years later, I don't think the Clash London Calling exists without Exile. It's another one. That's that's a record that has everything from jazz to pop to country uh, to to punk all, and reggae all on its own and ska. I mean, so I just named like five ones there, and I think that it I think that it added this element to rock and roll that you didn't have to be all one thing. If you were going down the like the the prog rock scene to me. Um, took the Beatles and went far down their classical lane and figured that stuff out and it got big and bloated and, and everything else. And I think you were seeing a lot of that. And the, the the pop bands that were coming out at the time were were relying on the other pop bands for their influences. And the Stones were like, no, no, we're, it doesn't matter. You can, you can have country, you can have soul, you can have gospel, you can have all these things. Wait. If you like, you're saying with the alt country. If you're into the at this time that this comes out, and within the first two years after it comes out, if you're into the Bakersfield sound, you can go back to this and like Absolutely. this. If you're into the New York Dolls and T Rex, you got Rock Soft, you got All Down the Line, Rip This Joint. If you're into punk, you know, mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you the Sex Pistols heard this. Sure, you know, um, they might have hated it. Might well, might have said that. <laughs> uh, of course, I think uh, Johnny Rotten hates everything, but. Uh, it's just an amazing American music album, like I said, made by a British rock band. It's a yeah, absolutely. Which and I would I would say the other um, great American record made by foreigners was uh, uh, Big Pink by the 
by the band, like mostly Canadians. And a, so, and, a, and a lonely guy from Arkansas Delta. Yeah, and right, exactly. So, yeah, it, it's just um, so hugely influential. And, and so you just can't imagine the history of rock and roll without it. And I, I guess why, and I've had a lot of conversations, and, and I like Stone's records that some people don't. Like, I mean, there are people that... that I have a friend that argues with me about goat's head soup and black and blue every single day of the week. He, he argues with, he thinks he can't understand how I like those records. And, but I do. You're an emotional rescue guy, aren't you? I like emotional rescue too. Although I, I, I'm not going to tell you that it's, that that doesn't have its own bit of bloat to it, but it also has some really good cuts. Um, Black and Blue to me actually has some really great tracks that nobody pays attention to because there's not a there's not a hit to be found on the record. Memory Motel is on Black and it's Blue. It's fantastic. Have you heard the version with Dave Matthews? I have on, not. All right, the No Security Tour, they did a uh, live album, and you know they whenever somebody opens for them, they have them come out. So, and from what I understand, most of the time they ask the people, "What do you want to do?" Mm-hmm. And Dave Matthews said. Um, I want to do Memory Motel. One of the few songs where Keith and Mick both have lead vocals on it. It is one of the best live songs I've ever heard them do. Awesome. On the No Security Tour. Um, another great thing about the Stones is they they're they take such pride in their opening opening bands. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorites, when I saw them, Sheryl Crow opened up for them in Nashville. Well, you know, she famously is kind of like their little sister. And... Uh, I love the story of how Mick says Cheryl doesn't feel comfortable without her guitar. So he always has her out to do a song where she cannot have her guitar. Ah. And he said, you know, she just loves to stand there. Well, he can't stand there for, you know, even on a slow song, he's moving his hips. So he will force her to get out there and try to dance. If you ever go and see, I think it's at Madison Square Garden, they do Honky Tonk Women, and you can tell she is about to have a panic attack. But he just keeps on making her dance, you know. Um... But uh, to get back to Exile, I guess kind of my closing thoughts on it, um, I echo most of what you say. It's one of the great growers of all time, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think so many people are like us, listen to it the first time and go, that's just, it's, uh, it's blah. You know, the more you listen to it and the more you hear other people talk about it, you go back and you, the, the nuances that are on this album. Uh, it's just amazing. And it's amazing it got recorded it's amazing, mm-hmm. amazing that I'll live through it because yeah. I mean I know we talk about the drugs a lot uh, on this, but the drugs were all over the place. They were all to over the place. point. I think the police approached Keith and said, "You've got to get some of these people out of your house." Um, when that when they were in France because it was just it was basically a drug den, and I think they were having stuff even flown in from America. And he had a guy that would go to the airport, you know, and and bring in the, the heroin and just. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a it's Well, there's a, the famous story of of, uh, and I may have it a little bit wrong, but I think I've got the gist. Um, they had hired this fine French chef to cook for them, and he lasted about six months. I I, don't, I forget how long were they there? Were they there a year, fourteen months? But he lasted about six months, and he just one day he up and quit because. Keith had asked for a cheeseburger for one too many times. And this this fine chef wasn't having anything to do with it. And this whole scene made him crazy. And so he left. So I guess they were out locally. Um, and that's one of the things I understand that they liked. 
is nobody knew who they were in the south of France. So they could go to the beach, they could go to a restaurant, nobody knew who they were. Um, but he went out and, and he saw a couple of, started up a conversation, and I don't know if they were doing drugs together or whatever with a couple of guys, and said, hey, we got an opening, can you cook? Okay, brought the two guys there. Well, then they went to Paris. The, the whole entourage went to Paris for the weekend, and those guys stole everything. They stole every piece of equipment in the house, all all of Bobby Key's saxophones, guitars, bass, amps, everything. They wiped it all out. And um, that just kind of tells you <laughs> right there. It's like, but they didn't care. Keith just went out and he bought Bobby Key's an entire new set of saxophones right on, you know, everybody's bummed and Keith's like, hey, we've got plenty of money. You know, we'll just buy new. And, and they, they were restocked within a day of all this equipment. Bobby Keys, shame we, we haven't really mentioned him on this. Um, really, the sixth member of the Stones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he's Stewart too. Yeah, you can't, you can't skip Ian. So, but yes, yeah, yeah. both of them. Yep. Um, you know, Keith says is my brother from another mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he really took his death, took his death really hard. I'm, I am not a fan of of the saxophone generally. But boy, does he add to the songs that he played on. Uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, that, that at the end, that's just, the song wouldn't be the same without it. Yeah, I, I, I love the saxophone. I wanted to play sax. I'm a Coltrane fan. I'm, I, so sax to me is, I love saxophone. So, but he, as far as the rock and roll sax players, he's right up there with Clarence Clements. Um, and the thing about Bobby Keys. It's not just his work with the Stones. Didn't he play with like... Um, David Bowie, yeah. you name it. I mean, he has... I mean, he, that's his sax solo on fame. Um, and he's all over the place. Saw him once at the cannery in Nashville, um, opening up for Drive-By Truckers about... Maybe a year before he died, something like that. Um, and his... Um, why am I not thinking... Dan Baird... Mm-hmm. Was his back was his band leader and his backing band and it was just wonderful. I'm so glad I got to see him. Did you get and to meet him? Did not get to meet him. Mm-mm. Quick question: Was was he tied in at all to the Muscle Shoals sound? Or was he friends with those guys? I or? don't know the answer to that question. I, I I would think they probably at least crossed paths. Yeah, I don't know the answer some. to that question. Well, Dean, this has been a pleasure. It's fun, absolutely. Um, I will try my darnness to find as many times to get you on here to talk about music that you'll allow me to. All right. Um, really enjoyed talking about Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Both of our, maybe our favorite album of all time. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that can say that. So that's going to wrap it up for this week. Chris will be back with me uh, next week. He is, uh, he's got us a fun topic. I think um, everybody out there will enjoy. Uh, anyway, Real quick, follow us on Twitter at Digital Kill. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on uh, Instagram at Digital Kill, the Radio Star Podcast. Once again, mega thanks to Dean Gavney, uh, as usual. Uh, just a uh, wealth of knowledge and uh, just a really a joy to talk music with him. Chris and I will be back next week, and uh, we hope everybody has a good one. <laughs>